The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I wish there were more hindrances so we can just meet longer. <laughs> no, so uh, I'm happy to be back. I think maybe you know that I was traveling and then I was ill, but uh, now I'm better and I'm happy to be here. So last week, you guys talked about sloth and torpor. And Tanya tells me that you didn't talk specifically about the homework, but some of the homework, if you read it, was about experimenting with the amount of energy that you have or adopting posture, sitting up straighter, or doing some walking meditation as some way to maybe work with the effort level, as well as just this recognition that sometimes we can tease apart sloth and torpor. Sometimes it's helpful to do that. Sometimes it doesn't matter. But... We might think of sloth as kind of like this bodily feeling of uh, heaviness, tiredness, or you're just not enough energy. And torpor is maybe like the mental side, this dullness, fogginess, kind of uh, moving through jello, the mind kind of feeling. So I just offer that as a really brief introduction to see if you have any comments or questions about what was covered last week before we jump into this week. The one thing I notice is that um, becoming aware of either um, Noticing how I was sitting was really good. Oh, nice. It just kind of brought me back to like, okay, look, this is, you need to actually spend energy in being present here for this, right? And for some reason, for me, the, the how I'm sitting is really important. And I think I mentioned to you also that um, one of the things that was shocking was like, not just how I was, my, my spine was, but also the angle of my mm-hmm. head, that if I'm too far up, I'm reaching for something. If I'm down, I'm actually going off into sloth and torpor. So forcing myself to actually be at sort of an even... Yeah, keeping like the head, like just looking yeah, straight. Yeah, looking straight ahead. And it, it's very sensitive, and I can really feel it. And it turned out to be really useful. It has turned out to be really useful. Yeah. Anyways, that's it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, interestingly, I'm putting together a class I'm going to be doing on equanimity because the same thing is kind of similar with equanimity. If we feel like we're balanced and poised, then it's easier to be more equanimous. So it's quite striking, this connection with just how our posture is. Yeah. And for me, I'll say also kind of like pushing the chin back just this tiny little bit somehow opens up here and I just feel a little bit more present somehow. It's quite something, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, you, you don't have anything that you want to share, or no pressure. But <laughs> I mean, I'm listening. Uh, I've had um, kind of sleepless nights this week, and by the third day, sorry, Richard. I went to yoga last night and I was like almost delirious. I was so tired, but I did notice 
when I was in yoga, it was like the jello mind. I was like, even the hearing of a voice, like the teacher, I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired. And it feels like walking through like the muddy waters, but I was present with the yoga and then went home and went to bed. So Hmm. I noticed it then. Did it feel like a hindrance or was it just like, okay, this is what sleep deprivation feels like? Or did it feel like nah, there's something extra here that's making it? Yeah, it was really hard for me to listen to, or like follow along in the class. I almost felt like I wanted to do my own thing. But I'm like, nope, there's a teacher here and he's telling me what to do and I have to do it. So it did feel a little bit more of a hindrance. And then I think about it at work, it was even harder because I had all these tasks that I needed to do. And I was like, gosh. I am so, so beat from sleep deprivation. Mm. Hopefully you got some good sleep <laughs> since then. I did. Thank yeah. you. I'm happy to hear that. It makes a difference, right? Sleep makes such a difference. Great. Thank you. Tonya. I'm so glad you're feeling better and here with us tonight. Thank you. Yeah, so, t- you know, we're going to... St- Start and finish with doubt. And um, I actually, you know, we've, when we've taught this before, we taught it first because it's so significant. And um, even just even as I was thinking about, you know, it again tonight, I was like, you know, so many of the characters have a combination of hindrances from the Wizard of Oz. And the doubt is there for all of them. And, you know, I was thinking, so how do you decide the primary and secondary? You know, is there a primary hindrance and a secondary hindrance? And, and I was thinking about them, all of them, and the characters, and I'll speak more specifically. And I thought, well, if they had confidence, if they each had confidence, I don't think they'd have the other significant hindrance the way they do. So let's, let's explore this a little bit. So the lion, right, his primary hindrance was um, worry, right? Very cowardly and fearful. And his belief, right, was that he needed courage so that he wouldn't feel fear. So he had... Um, you know, he felt he needed courage. He didn't have the confidence, right? So he doubted his own ability, and he he had a belief that it wasn't okay to be fearful. And we know that that's it's okay to be fearful, right? We can be quite courageous and have fear. And if we have confidence, we know that if we're afraid, it's still okay. So, so you know, maybe his own doubt and his awareness and his own capacity really created the the huge feeding ground for a tremendous amount of worry maybe and then later you know we know he has courage because i don't know if you remember but when they go to rescue dorothy from the castle because the wicked witch kidnapped dorothy and had her in her castle and was going to kill her and it was the lion that led the way up as they were climbing the mountain. He was the one leading the pack, and he was afraid, and he still did it. So the end, you know, the wizard gives him that fake medal of honor. 
But that's not where his courage came from. It existed before, right? The scarecrow, his primary hindrance was uh, restlessness, right? Very all over the place. And his mind followed, right? And very, very much followed that. And, you know, his belief was that he didn't have a brain, Believing he didn't have a brain, he did not think he, he could think. He had no confidence in his ability to think. And, um, you know, so if he had confidence, if he had doubt in his own capacity, would he have been so restless? I don't know. And let's just sort of also think about the fact that Who was it that was the strategizer? Who was it that came up with the plan to get the guards and get the costumes and change into them so they look like the monkeys and get in the... It was the scarecrow. He's the one that had this idea, and this is before the wizard gave him that fake diploma. So it was the fake diploma that gave him the confidence to believe, and then he shares the equation. What, what was it? I don't know. Some sort of the square root of blah, 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 is blah, 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 blah. You know, all of a sudden, he, you know, has this wisdom because of this fake certificate. Your wisdom is all about knowing math equations. That's right. <laughs> and then we have the Tin Man, right, whose primary hindrance appears to be um, sloth and torpor, Right. Moving slowly, frozen, speaking slowly, you know, sort of. And um, interestingly to me, it's this connection to his heart, right? He, he believes that he, he doesn't have a heart. This is a belief he has, right? So he believes he can't be in love and love be loved. And, and yet he's sad, longing for love, and longing for love. Can we be sad about love and long for love without a heart? I don't know. I don't think so. So his own own belief structure, his own idea that he doesn't have a heart, creates tremendous doubt in his ability to do what he most wants to do. For all of them, really. For all of them to do what they most want to do. And so that foundation, this lack of confidence or belief in oneself and one's capacity, creates a beautiful pot for growing hindrances. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just say about the Tinman, um, also just, um, you know, he demonstrated not only was he longing for love and really caring about it and but, you know, he demonstrated a lot of, a lot of caring for Dorothy and the, the, the you know, straw man when his um, straw got pulled out by the monkeys. And, you know, this is, these are acts of love. And so did his caring come from that fake ticking heart that the wizard gave him? No, it was there beforehand. But yet this heart somehow gave him confidence. It was somehow somebody gave him something that he then could borrow their confidence and bring it home and connect with his 
capacity for love more, more freely. And then finally with Dorothy. So Dorothy had this chanda, this healthy desire, right? And, and, and this faith, I think. She, she, was, she never really questioned her ability to get home. I didn't really feel like she ever said, forget it. You know, she was willing to go into this scary forest and confront the wicked witch and just go on this journey by herself in the beginning. She was by herself, you know, traveling and made these companions. So she had this drive, this chanda, this desire for freedom or home. Um, But she thought it was somebody else that was going to get her home. She believed it was somebody else that was going to kind of give her the way home. And um, really, you know, it was Dorothy getting herself home. There's no place like home, clicking her own heels. You know, you could say home. What is home? Home is awareness. Home is being present. You know? And you could say... uh, you know, the uh, the land of the Oz is like a dream, right? We, it's this technicolor dream. And she chose to wake back up to her true home, which is, okay, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em on this little farm, and it's shot in black and white, you know? But she that's, that's her home. She chose to come back and be there with her family. So... She, she needed a lot of, you know, borrowed confidence, too, with the ruby shoes and the, the um, Glinda, the, the kind witch. Or so, to, so, so she seems, anyway. <laughs> um, so, there we go. Diana? <laughs> uh, it's, kind of, it's fun to uh, listen to this, Tanya. I was thinking, like, Wow, what other movies could we do this uh, with? You know, find these five characters. But I think one of the things it's pointing out is right. These are like archetypes for a reason, because it's something that happens to everybody. It's just a part of life. Of course, it is. Right? It's part of the human experience. And in this context of Buddhist practice, we can uh, work uh, building on what Tanya said. Doubt, one way it shows up is this doubt in our capacity to practice, in our ability, or this kind of, it might be like this little niggling feeling like, am I doing this right? I don't think, I'm not doing this right. Everybody else looks like they're just on the brink of awakening, and I feel like I'm still just doing my shopping list, or, you know, this kind of a feeling, or like, uh, this, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Should I do this practice? Or, or I've heard meta practice is really nice. And I had that time when it was a lot of fun and my heart felt expensive. So I'm going to do some loving kindness practice. And then you do loving kindness practice for a few minutes. And like, oh, but I, I don't feel really loving. And that person that's sitting next to me is really irritating me. So I'm now going to go switch and try to do just some concentration practice. And Oh, it's too hard to do concentration practice. So now I'm good. right. You get this, right? This, right? We do this. We do this. So this feeling like, oh, maybe I can't do it. Kind of like doubt in ourselves, or maybe like doubt in the practices. Like, 
which practice should I do? There's a sense of hesitation or a vacillation or just spinning around in circles, but not a sense of moving forward. So maybe in the same way with the Wizard of Oz, there was in the very beginning when we first meet the characters, they're kind of stuck. They're not really moving forward, but then they kind of find their way literally and figuratively, right? They go down the yellow brick road and live happily ever after. And I promise you're going to live happily ever after. (laughs) I wish I could promise that, but uh, I don't think I can, though. so. So I just want to maybe, when we think of this word doubt... For me, I find it helpful to think of it's when there's hesitation, vacillation, a wavering, resistance. This is how it like shows up. It's often not these clear thoughts. I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure about these teachers, this teaching. I'm not sure about the relevance of the teachings. Usually those thoughts aren't so fully formed. It's more just maybe a little bit of stuckness or a sense of not going forward. And then I also want to highlight that this is a natural and expected part of practice. Absolutely, there is not a single practitioner in which this has not happened to. It's part of the human experience. It's part of when you do learn anything new, including meditation. But I also want to say that there's, not only is it expected and part of practice, but it's, I would even say, it's an essential part of practice. Because how else would we learn about the way that we behave when we're feeling not so motivated like what we do? Or what are some of these underlying beliefs that are fueling our practice or that kind of like sabotaging our practice? We wouldn't ever look at them or examine them unless we were kind of really struck with some doubt. So it has a function, I would say, as well in our practice. But sometimes when we hear this word doubt we may feel like it means that you're not sure about all the answers. And so again, that's not what we're pointing to here. What we're pointing to is this, sometimes we might think of it as stuckness or hesitation or wavering. Because doubt is helpful. Right? We need help. We need to, like, if you receive a completely out of the blue, this... uh, email from your bank, like, oh, we have a new policy now, so please send us all your personal information so that we can update our files, right? There's a little doubt, like, is this right? Is this right? Right? And you just know, okay, I'm not going to go there. So we need doubt in our life, and we need it in our practice, too. If somebody promises you, you're going to live happily ever after, right? (laughs) You need to have a little bit of doubt. So it's helpful to kind of distinguish, well, what is helpful and what is not helpful. And so one way to think about it is, well, is it have a sense of impeding us moving forward? Or is it maybe impeding our moving forward and encouraging a certain disengagement? Because that's the real, I don't know, the sticking point or the, as are something that's really important about doubt is it's so powerful it can have us just fall away from the practice like I can't do this or they don't know what they're talking about or that's silly I don't you know and then we can just walk away from it so of course 
so that maybe maybe I'll say so the healthy doubt is a way that we're not just buying everything hook line and sinker. Of course, there's this Dharma teaching that it's you know to come and see a hipposico, come and see. So there's a real invitation. Find out for yourself, as opposed to just believe these things or just do these things and you'll be fine. Instead, is that what's being pointed to is. I guess I would say that it's paramount to engage with the practice. Discover for yourself. Allow what's being pointed to by other teachers. Allow that to maybe uh, indicate a direction to go, but it's your own practice that's going to answer the questions and um, and help guide you with the, some of the fine-tuning Sometimes it, there's uh, practitioners or um, that might think, well, it's okay, as soon as I learn everything precisely, then it'll be okay. Memorize all 16 steps of Anapanasati or all 37 wings of awakening or, you know, all these types of things. But it's more about allowing some uh, you to learn kind of the direction to go and then to go. And so what that means is that when you go, quote-unquote, is that naturally there will be stumbling blocks, there'll be other hindrances, there'll be confusion, all these types of things. But it's just to stay engaged. What do I mean by engaged? One, just to continue practicing, if you can. If you can't, then it's an opportunity to do a little bit of investigation. Just to have this sense of, well... What is going on? Is there something here that is that I'm not seeing that I really don't want to see? Is there is there a I have this note I'm looking for myself. I had this nice word that I wanted to use, but now I don't remember what it was. But nevertheless, I can say this instead of like struggling with the struggle or feeling like, oh, this is just too complicated or I, or there's just resistance. I don't want to do it. Instead, one way to engage is maybe just to settle back, open up, and maybe ask the question, what am I not seeing here? Or what is going on that I don't want to be here and I'm trying to pretend it's not there? Or, or is there something here that is touching into fear or creating the conditions for fear or something like that. Then we're back in the practice. So I would say the opposite of doubt is investigation. Either investigate in your practice, or if you can't get to the cushion, just for whatever reason, and this happens, right? We have seasons in our practice where there's just so much resistance we can't go. Maybe see if the, you can clarify, are there a particular question? Like, they talk about not self, and yet there's this rebirth thing, and like, I don't know. That seems too weird to me. I'm just not going to do it. Well, maybe you could, like, if I'm just making this up, right? Well, do some investigation. Ask somebody, read about it, or if that feels like something that is uh, hindering you from engaging with the practice. I just offer that as an example.
So sometimes it can be that we find ourselves, I did this in the beginning, oh, I'm going to do metal, then I'm going to do concentration, and then I'm going to do this. Sometimes, if you notice that's happening, it can be really helpful just to say, oh, this is doubt. Doubt feels like this, this vacillation, this swirling around. So maybe I'd say that's the second. So one is to investigate. This is one way you can work with doubt. Two is to just name it. There's something quite powerful by saying, oh, it's just a hindrance. Just like the tin man, the lion, (laughs) Dorothy, the wizard. The wizard might even have doubt too, right? He has to overcompensate by having this microphone and this wizard and you know, or uh, curtain, you know. Everybody has some of this doubt, right? So just to name it kind of might help normalize it and maybe take uh, some of the authority away from it. That might be a second way to work with it. A third way is to work with it is to just notice if there are any beliefs that you will find the perfect practice so easy gives immediate results and it's blissful 100% of the time or two that uh, you find the perfect teacher that's always available when you need them they have the perfect answer you know or you know, whatever these we um, sometimes, without even recognizing it, we have these ideas of what we think would be helpful. And then when I'm saying it out loud, it sounds silly. But there might be like little pieces of that or vestiges of that, like, oh, there's got to be something easier or something better. So just inquire, what kind of beliefs are is fueling this, this doubt, this hesitation? Or this? I can't practice because the lawnmower's going. Yes, right. I can't practice because I don't have the right cushion. Yeah. You know, there's so many ways we can say we can't practice because it's not right. Or I can't practice because I only have seven minutes. Right. I can practice for seven minutes. Right. Yeah. There's so many different things that we can do. So maybe a third thing. I'm looking at my notes here. What, what time am I supposed to finish it? There's no rush. Okay. <laughs> Um, maybe just say for the sense of completeness that that we can in this tradition take beautiful teachings that support us that make sense to us and help support a sense of freedom and ease in our life and leave behind the other ones just say, put them on the shelf. I don't understand that. I don't think it's helpful. It seems a little bit too weird, whatever. There's no requirement that you believe absolutely everything or take absolutely everything. You don't even have to, you know, become a Buddhist, quote-unquote, whatever that means. So this is really just offering what's helpful. And somehow just appreciating that kind of allows some other these doubts about some of the things to just like okay you don't have to you don't have to believe that or do that and then maybe the last thing that I'll say here is that I talked about how doubts often don't show up as um, clear thoughts in the way that I described them but they might kind of show up in some of the thoughts that Tanya was just saying I can't practice because the lawnmower is going or 
can't practice because I don't I left my zafu at my friend's house or whatever it is. It's helpful to recognize thoughts are just thoughts. They're just thoughts. We don't have to believe them. They don't have to be authoritative. I'm not saying it's not true that the lawnmower is going. It's not true that the Zafu is there. But it's just a thought that says, oh, I can't practice now. And we can practice anyway. So, or we might have, you know, thoughts that might get tangled up in philosophizing about things. And, well, this Buddhist tradition says that. That Buddhist tradition says this. They clearly don't know what they're talking about or something those are just thoughts, too. So there's a way in which we can get tangled up in our thinking, which really can have our practice ground to a halt or something. And just to recognize, oh, those are just thoughts. If you just wait a few moments, other thoughts will arise. <laughs> and you can be with those other thoughts. Maybe those ones are a little more supportive for practice. So, You know, what, what you're saying makes me think, too. It's like... Um... It's almost it's almost the thought that's not said. Yeah. Right? Because I can't practice because the lawnmower's running. Why? There's no why given. There's an assumption. Right? And so it, it's that's why like I love what you're saying about it's, it's the doubt is very hidden. It's not so direct. I think you're you're absolutely right. They're not clearly formed as I can't practice because the lawnmower. It's more irritation at the lawnmower. Well, people will um, say I can't practice because the lawnmower. But if you really keep playing the sentence out and say I can't practice with the lawnmower because it's too loud, and you say okay, so it's too loud, and if it's too loud, I can't practice. Well, why not? If I can, I be aware that it's too loud. Yeah. Oh, is that practice? Oh, yeah. I guess that is. It's sort of like we just kind of end with this kind of almost a declaration that shows up as resistance or mm-hmm. kind of like pushing away or something. Mm-hmm. But maybe underneath that is this doubt I can't practice. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might be able to, but I can't. Absolutely. And maybe this is something else that's kind of really highlights with doubt, there's this constricted sense of I when there's a doubt. It's like, I don't understand. I can't do it. And this can be subtle. To have this feeling of the self is tight and, I don't know, constricted, not open and spacious and flexible. So, maybe I'll offer that. So... Would you? What would? What would you? Um, I was. Would, would maybe provide them an opportunity to talk about this with yourselves, right? Without uh, a surrounder. Is that what you're thinking, Tonya? Or yeah. Well, I was going to ask them. You guys. Yeah. Are, you guys have been here since the beginning. You're both good small group discussing <laughs> discussers. So, are you comfortable just talking to each other? Great. I figured. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so I'll give you a few um, 
questions. So that, and then just because there's two of you, you can kind of like go back and forth, kind of like bouncing around back and forth with this. So one is, what is, uh, how can you tell, and I mentioned this, but maybe you have your own experience. How can you tell when to skillful and helpful and when it's actually a hindrance? When is it getting in the way? Because there's, sometimes we might think, oh, we don't want doubt. We might feel like, oh, I have to believe everything or something like that. So that's one. Like, when is it really a hindrance? When, when is it helpful? Maybe I should just give them that, let them talk for a little bit, and then ring the bell and give you another question. Let's do that. Yeah, that's easiest. Okay. What does the absence of doubt feel like? So, you know, what, what is, how does it feel in the body? How does it feel in the mind? And then, of course, we might say that, um, and how would it be helpful to know this? Like, how can it be a support for your practice to have this familiarity with the absence of doubt feels like? Okay. This idea of doubt, do you feel like you have more doubt about your capacity or to practice or to do what the teachings are? Or about the teachings, like, is this really going to make my life the way that I want my life to be? Or maybe about the teachers, it could be me and Tanya, or it could be like the Buddha, or just however you want to define teachers. Gil Fronstall, whatever, you know. <laughs> So, which do you feel like you have the most doubt, the hindering doubt about? And maybe, and then maybe just throw in what beliefs might be underlying that. Or like we talked earlier about, sometimes the doubt shows up as not a clearly articulated belief, but might there be a belief underneath that? So. And while you guys were talking, Tanya and I just designed a whole nother course. <laughs> we're thinking, like, let's do this, I'll do that. <laughs> great, great. So I, I think, Tanya, you're going to take us. Well, just, you know, do you mind sharing any insights that, or, you know, anything that got more clear to you as you talked about Tao together? Anything that you would share to the people in YouTube land and listeners that come come along the way? Um, For me, feeling doubt is kind of an indicator that I'm in the right place. Ah. You know? Uh, Fantastic. That said, um, I'm not sure about investigation being the opposite of doubt. Or maybe not how I think about the opposite of doubt. Uh, when doubt arises, I can't. I'm, I can't be present enough for investigation. I mean, in in my practice, for my mind, right? My mind is at all times, and I'm meditating, trying to get me off, right? Introducing doubt, introducing this, introducing that. When I feel those, it's like, okay, there you are. Let's get back. But I can't, 
I can't get into investigation. What does work for me is, um, in the end, it's, it is, in fact, a sort of a blind faith, which comes from my practice so far. Yeah. And that's the benefit of just continuing the practice, is that eventually you just start to understand that there's benefits that you couldn't have even described. I've had a couple of insights while meditating which blew me away, and they're extraordinarily important. There's no way I would have gotten there without meditating. And so at this point, I have like this, this, this just belief. Let's call it faith. It's belief. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Beautiful. And I got to thinking, you know, there's this, there's also the, the business about the sword and just kind of cutting mm-hmm. something and just saying, I've cut it. I can't quote what it is fully, right? But in a way, one can do that with doubt also, right? Mm-hmm. You can just say, no, actually, I'm just going to bring the sword down and I'm just going to cut that. And I'm going to make what I think that is really is a commitment to like, no, I'm going to cut that and not think about that. I refuse to let it be a part of my life anymore, and so move ahead. Which is, again, I think a matter of of trust. It's a matter of Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. This is fantastic. So this comes from practice, right? Having had some practice, like, okay, I've been here before. I I know that if I just hang in there or that this has benefit, even if it's not comfortable or those types of things. So, I mean, this also comes more recently from, and having coming back to practice at this point after some years of not, because my going in and out took years. The realization was that, um, I mean, I've been in therapy for some stuff, and the realization was that I can't make progress by what I can think through (laughs) right now, and that I need to seek avenues which come at me from different directions which I'm not looking for meditation is one of them there's been a couple of things that have come up recently where it's like oh shit yeah yeah that yeah that right Mm -hmm. that never they never would have come from just thinking it through right Yeah. yeah and I've I made that commitment recently to just like it's kind of the sword coming down no just do it and I'm going off to a retreat. I've never been motivated to go to a retreat, but I'm going to go to a retreat. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I just wanted to bring up this business of the opposite of it. And I mean, I think in meditation, there's no, there's no way to address that without actually just doing the practice. Just meditate. Just do it for a long enough period of time so that you can really say to yourself, I have investigated. Mm. I've just given it enough of a enough of a chance. Beautiful. Yeah. Yes, that's very nice. It makes me happy to hear this too. <laughs> that you have this ability to like, no, I'm just not gonna do this, making this commitment. Having some loyalty to yourself to Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Very nice. Richard. Do you want to share your little? Shall I say it? I'm just well. I have to say it now, no. just to doubt, doubt. 
Use doubt, doubt. Yep. Doubt, doubt. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. It looks like Cassandra, you didn't want to say much. So, shall we move into um, doing the raft practice? Yeah. Okay. So, feeling your feet again, bringing your awareness, choosing where you direct your awareness and bringing it into the body in the present moment, the feet, the bottom, the hands. Maybe uh, lift the shoulders, roll them back, opening up the chest cavity. Where's that chin? Finding that, you know, sort of straight ahead posture with a little teeny tuck in the the chin just feel like maybe taking even a posture of confidence this uprightness and just let yourself feel the impact of setting this posture Just holding this this space for practice, this uprightness that creates a container for things to come in and flow out and be held, to be seen. And when the time is right for you, you can drop in this question. When you feel that solid space, that connection with the confidence and the brightness of being here, you can drop in the question and and be the observer. What am I insecure about? Or try, where do I lack confidence? Or maybe, where do I feel like a fraud? And ideally, this is in reference to your practice or your capacity to practice. And witness what arises. Where is their insecurity? Where do I feel like a fraud? And as you allow yourself to witness what the mind offers, see if you recognize doubt anywhere. See if you can see it clearly. 
And of these things that arise, and if there is some doubt in the practice or in your ability to practice or in the teacher, can you choose one of these that's not overwhelming, that you're able to sit with and look in the eye without sinking into the abyss of doubt? that you feel you could investigate with curiosity. And if you find that, recognize the R of raft. I see you. I see you doubt. Yeah, right there. I see you. And kind of look it in the eye. And see if you can hold space that's allowing the A of raft. Allowing the doubt to be present and witnessed. Not to consume you, not to chase away, but to recognize, look it in the eye and allow it to be there. And then to feel it, to follow it into the body and notice how it manifests. Where do you feel it? Be patient. What happens when you feel it? And you give it permission to be there. Remembering this uprightness, this capacity to hold the space. To observe as you're aware of the experience. And as you're sitting with, you may be coming aware of different components, the different pieces that come together to create the possibility for this doubt to exist. And as they present themselves, allowing them to have a seat at the table. the memory of an experience that's connected to this doubt. A belief you have held or were taught that feeds this doubt. the image of who you think you should be or shouldn't be that may be involved in supporting this doubt. 
and the sword that cuts through, the faith that has grown from your practice, your experience, allowing all the pieces that unveil themselves, reveal themselves to you, to have a seat at the table. while maintaining the container that can hold it all, the space, the awareness. almost looking down at the scene, sort of taking it all in, not needing to do anything other than to get to know all the components that come together, few or many, making room for them all, And at some point, as things begin to be clear or settled, whenever that happens for you, there can be a sitting back, in a way, a relaxing back, the sense of trust, equanimity, the capacity to be with and be at ease. There may even be moments of joy in the clarity that's offered. Just allowing yourself to settle into this space that feels more Confident, trusting, equanimous with it all.
Thank you, Tanya. I, I've been thinking of it as Rafti because it has the two T's. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes. Never, we won't go down there. <laughs> Recognize, allow, feel in the body, tease apart, and trust. And maybe trust is really kind of about a little bit about doubt too. It's like putting aside the doubt. I hadn't really thought of that in that terms before, but I think so. That's a nice way to think about it. So just opening it up to see if you guys have any comments about that guided meditation and kind of like using this rafti with a doubt. Doubt about ourselves with a practice and kind of starting that way. Which I think, I was just saying to Tanya, I think probably everybody has some of this. If you are attending or listening to a class on the hindrances, that means you're in the practice enough that you care about working with the hindrances. So everybody's like, oh, how can I work with these difficulties that keep on showing up or something? I, I because... I was just laughing because I had doubt about doing a raft practice about doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't doubt I, that you doubted having to make a fuss about doubt. <laughs> how am I going to find something to doubt? How, this isn't going to work. That's <laughs> exactly what happened. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You get bonus points for that one. Because I don't. <laughs> to laugh while I was, it was quiet in here because I just saw it so clearly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. It doesn't get better. <laughs> I think our work is done here, right? <laughs> you saw the doubt. Nice. That's very nice. On the raft part of it, I guess, it does describe what happens except for one part when I'm meditating and feeling doubt, when the doubt arises or arises in several different ways, but recognize for sure. Allow. I don't fight it, actually. It's just like, okay, you're there feel, I do try to feel it in my body, and we were talking about this, right? We, we do wind up becoming aware of it in our body. I will not tease it apart. I will, I will trust that it's okay. It's just happening right now. It's not forever. But I think if I tried to tease it apart, it would disrupt my meditation, for mm-hmm. one. Beautiful. Because it would get mm-hmm. kind of heady, mm-hmm. and uh, it's giving it too much weight. It's giving it too much voice, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I would do just raft. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's been eye-opening for me too, because the teasing apart, I doubt the teasing apart, because I'm like, I don't know how to tease this apart. I don't know where to find this and where it's coming from, and then it feels stressful almost. So I appreciate introducing an alternative tea for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. It, which is trusting, and it feels oh, like so much better to just trust what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, and I'll just say that, you know, again, I think my guess is, Gus, there's a way you're already teasing it apart so quickly you don't even need to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to, sometimes it's just, it's it's like not complicated. Oh, you're familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, okay, I know what happens. Oh, if I go down there, I'm going to get lost or get caught in the mental, you know. So you really are putting, you're, it's a really, it's a, so simple. 
you know, and sometimes uh, the allowing happens instantly when you see, when you recognize, you know. It's like these are, these are parts of the process, but they don't all have to be huge in and of themselves. It depends on what we're practicing with. It really just depends. And so it's good to trust <laughs> what's tart. Happened? We should just do tart. <laughs> Fart. <laughs> we can think of all the <laughs> frat. I don't know. We can come up with all the different versions of them. Yeah. Yeah. If it's it's a fart, Absolutely. just feel it in the body. <laughs> and then feel it leaving your body. <laughs> just allow. <laughs> you might want to have other people leave the room before you do. <laughs> I think you're right about how much, well, maybe, okay, so what happens for me when I'm meditating also, my sense of time disappears. And so something may actually have happened, but I really don't have any idea of how long it took. I'm always shocked when the bell rings. It's like, really, seriously? And, and I know that I've been, I mean, I've not fallen asleep. I know I've been awake the entire time, right? So maybe you're right. Maybe it's just, it happens, but I don't. Yeah, or yeah. it's just so subtle. It's just, I mean, it's not, there's not a lot, you know, like... Cassandra, a few weeks ago, I think you had a lot of pieces that were coming, you know, and sometimes it's like that, but sometimes it's, you know, it's enough to Simple. just just say, this is a thought and this is doubt, and you've done it right there. <laughs> just recognize. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of allowing and that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We don't necessarily need all the steps. Well, I think doubt infiltrates the way we think. <laughs> Maybe I would say almost thinking is doubting yeah. in some kind of ways. Yeah. Instead of just opening up and experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to, we're thinking, you know, we're trying to uh, somehow put language to an experience, and it's always interpretive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just introduce one idea, maybe like an expression that uh, I don't think Tanya or I said today. And once I say it, I think you guys will recognize it, but sometimes it's helpful to just be explicit. That sometimes doubt masquerades as wisdom. We might have this feeling, right, that, oh, I should... So it's just helpful to notice that. Like if we have this, oh... Right now, I can't think of a thought that would be a doubt, thought, masquerade, and wisdom. Maybe you have one. Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. I I don't know. But sometimes we might think that we're being really wise or smart or. I know better. Yeah, I know better. Yeah, something like that. But when it's really just doubt that's fueling these kinds of thoughts to make us feel better. Yeah, and not to feel, because doubt is uncomfortable, too. So that's part of what's fueling the thoughts, right? We like to feel like we can control or that we know or something like that. So it's there's inherent, uh, this uncomfortableness that um, the self really wants to get away from. And we'll do almost anything to get away from. 
And then I'm trying to think, um, is there anything else as we kind of, I'm closing things up. Maybe I'll just offer this to something that um, Tanya kind of uh, rolled into the guided meditation. But sometimes if, if it feels like it would be helpful, not if it feels burdensome and cumbersome, but if it feels like it might be helpful, like before a sit, to just remind yourself of some of the things that you are a capable person, that there are things that you have skills in or whatever it might be. Because just reminding ourselves of that can just switch the mindset enough that uh, when we sit down, we're coming from a place of some stability or not all consumed with doubt or something like that. So I just offer that. Sometimes it might feel a little bit awkward, though. Do you, do you, have you done this, Tanya? Where you kind of remind yourself before you sit down, like, okay, I am a capable person. I know how to cook some food. I've been able to hold down a job or, you know, whatever it is. I think, I think probably my early, my first when I'm sitting strategy is more to arouse faith, mm. to, to kind of connect with the Buddha um, or experiences with the practice. And then if I'm wobbling in the practice, I might do what you're describing, which is, you know, you've sat through a lot more. Mm-hmm. It, it won't kill you. Whatever I need to say to help, sort of, um, I know how to cook. <laughs> I say this because Tanya's a fantastic cook. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, but I, I know how to cook. And I think that's good. So I have a few, um, a few fun Wizard of Oz things to share. Nice. We... Yeah, yeah, I definitely have some I'd really like to share. <laughs> and I'll start with, um, you know, so the Wicked Witch, right, when she is in the castle and she's, Dorothy's escaped and there, right, there's this, um, Dorothy's running this way and all the witch and all the monkeys are coming out and on this walkway. And, um, and so Dorothy grabs, you know, the, the scarecrow, she writes, she lights the scarecrow on fire, the witch does. And so Dorothy grabs a, a bucket of water. This is such a strong metaphor to me of like, you know, what does water do? It cleanses, it puts fire out, it purifies, it helps us see clearly, right? So Dorothy throws the water, puts out the fire, the fire of whatever it is, you know, and then it gets on the witch. And as the witch is melting because of the water, she says this, Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my wickedness? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) When I really listened to that, I thought, oh my goodness. That's perfect. Who would have thought something simple like letting all these pieces sit at a table could have it all, like, fall apart, right? It's not some war. <laughs> it's, it's just cleansing, clearing, allowing, right? I just love that, love that. And then with the wizard, 
you know, Diana, you brought up like, yeah, how much of him is covering his own doubt with his robustness, you know, his, his illusions, you know. And, um, you know, what is behind all the illusions that we create, right? There's this part of it is we're covering things that we don't want others to see. And another part is what the mind itself does. It's a little like a magic show. So to me, some of the, the what the wizard represents is is how the mind works. It creates these things, these these like stories, and fills in the details and predicts the future. And there's many movies, right? So this is kind of he. The wizard kind of represents what what's going on, the inner workings that can happen in the mind, especially if we're not wise with what's happening. And the way that you know the Oz uses illusions and tricks to maintain power and status and control. But, you know, the hindrances, they're illusions and tricks. And they, the more energy we give them, the more power and control we give them. And Toto I already talked about, but I just love thinking about Toto as mindfulness itself, unhindered, right? Being able to see through, see clearly, pull the curtain back. And Dorothy carries Toto everywhere she goes. Nice, nice. We need to bring mindfulness with us everywhere we go. And I may have said this before too, but the the path, this yellow brick road and the path, right? With our path, it's not of practice. It's not out there. It's within. And it's revealed with the practice, with mindfulness. So we want to invite you to pull back the curtains to discover what's being hindered. The teachings say that the, the true mind is quite brilliant. Right? And we hope that, I think I can say we, that you'll kind of let the lightness of the characters linking arms, skipping down the path, <laughs> nice. you know, and that their own ability to, like you said it so nicely, Diana, they were pretty frozen with their hindrances, but they worked together and through it and got more free and free together as they danced down the path together. So that's... And maybe together is well, represents both, you know, hindrances, but people together. Absolutely. Practicing with others, like what a difference it makes. It makes such a difference. We're not going to talk about the book in tomorrow. <laughs> Do you want to? Please bring, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. bring this Let's forward. See. I love this. Since this is the last time, and we might as well just get as much as we can into <laughs> yeah. the analogy, right? I just said something about bringing uh, Mara into thinking about the Wicked Witch. Maybe you can say more about Mara. No, and, please, you say more about Mara. <clears throat> There's no such thing as the devil within Buddhism, but there is this concept of Mara as somebody who gets in the way. And um, not pleasant. And in this case, that's what the witch embodies, just getting in the way. And it's 
the cleansing water that just gets rid of Mara. And that story, right, that's really pretty, is the Buddha just touching the ground, right? And saying to Mara, I see you, and touching the ground and being fully grounded, and that just kind of taking care of Mara. And the Buddha also asks the earth to witness and and to say his he's worthy. Say what? I'm sorry. He's worthy. Right. He belongs. Right. right. And we need, you know, like that that faith, the confidence, you know, is it does come from within, but it also is helpful to have that grounding, the witness, the community, the sangha. Yeah. I mean, in some respects, maybe it is useful to know that this concept of chaos, Mara sort of encompassing chaos, representing chaos, right? It's true. It's real. It's. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm staying away from the devil part of it. That's not the point. Yeah. The point mm-hmm. of it more is yeah. chaos. Mm-hmm. And the the advantage of thinking about this way is we don't have to take it personally. Right. Doesn't mean anything that we're a failed meditator. Doesn't mean anything like that. It just this is what happens. When people practice, this is arises. <laughs> it happened to the Buddha. Happened to the Buddha. Happened to the Buddha. Yeah. It happened to everybody in this room, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So um I'll just, you know, say one more thing which is um that next week uh, I'll be starting another intro series with Sandra Sanabria, and we're going to include breakout groups as part of the intro series. So um, that's new and different, and uh, but it's been a hallmark of our Thursday nights. So um, and it'll only be in person. We will not be streaming on YouTube. So hopefully we'll come together and you know keep practicing and sharing. Thursday. Yep. So may this, the benefit of our time together, be a benefit for all beings everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. This was fun. It was fun. Sorry, I weren't here for more days.